It's my pleasure to welcome back to our lecture series, Tasha Wyatt. Um, Tasha is an associate professor of medicine at Uniform Services University, as you maybe just heard Dr. Kazada discussing. Um, as many of you maybe remember, Dr. Wyatt was here earlier in the year when we were sort of starting our DEI lecture series, and we sort of planned this as a end of the series lecture that hopefully includes some of the other concepts that you guys have heard and learned about and talked about over the course of this year in this lecture series. Um, the other thing I just wanted to say is that, you know, we do want to have some feedback and some evaluation of not just this part of the lecture series, but of the whole um, Friday critical care curriculum. So you'll probably be receiving some um, opportunities to give feedback, including of the DEI curriculum. And so I look forward to hearing kind of what you all thought about this. As this was the first year we piloted this curriculum, I think it's been really great, but um, we always want to uh, get feedback and continue to make it better. So anyway, Dr. Wyatt, thank you again for being here. I really am looking forward to this talk. Yeah. Well, thank you so much for having me uh, back. <laughs> I really appreciate the opportunity to talk with everybody. Um, this presentation is going to be a little bit different than the last one. So we talked about microaggressions the last time. So we're looking at uh, small acts between people or between systems in the last time I was here. And this time I'm going to be pulling out much bigger and talking about bigger and broader issues. So the title of my presentation this time around is Systems Are Divisive, especially in research. So I think this presentation is going to challenge you probably a little bit because I'm going to be bringing up some topics that you may not have considered in the past. Um, I'm probably going to be using some language that might be a little unfamiliar and some ways of speaking that you might not have encountered thus far in your career. So if at any time you want to stop me, I, I can't see the chat. Um, you can just turn on your mic and ask a question. So I'm happy to do that. So quick disclaimer, I work for the federal government. Um, <laughs> they definitely don't espouse the views that I'm about to share. <laughs> So I didn't get the chance to tell you a little bit about myself uh, the last time I was invited in. So I'm going to spend some time talking about who I am this time because it's very relevant to what I'm about to say. So for those of you who don't know me and don't know my work, you might be surprised that I am white, um, particularly because when I'm invited to come and speak, I usually talk about um, issues of minoritized physicians which is what I'm going to be talking about in the second part of this presentation today. However, as far as I know, I've been white my entire life. Um, and as you can imagine, being white in the United States has granted me a lot of privileges. Um, one of them is that I have been given a bird's eye view of the way society shapes individuals into being who it wants us to be. Um, particularly when I was being trained for my PhD, I learned a ton of research methods and tools that help me as a researcher maintain racial hierarchy and the social order as it is presently laid out. So this is a, as a white woman, this is my birthright, right? I've been given and granted all of these tools that I then pass down to the next generation. 
So I now train PhD learners and master's students at Uniform University. And one of the things I'm expected to do is to help them understand the dominant research methods, the theories, the framings, get them, get my students to internalize them and use them in their work so that they can perpetuate the system that um, has been created by our forefathers. So what my forefathers, our forefathers um, probably didn't anticipate is that uh, I was lucky enough to be also trained by a bunch of indigenous scholars at the University of Hawaii. And they pushed back on these dominant ways of thinking about research and granted me new tools. And so I live and work in this liminal space where I'm white and I'm expected to sort of push the system through. And at the same time, I had a set of tools that's pushing back on the system and trying to create change in research. So what I learned from my indigenous scholars is that I have a lot of power. So I create ideas, I create perspectives, I create ways to frame research that other people can build on, and therefore I can create reality because I put labels on things and I package it for others to consume and build their work on. That is a lot of power in society because I produce knowledge, just like many of you do in your own research. But in this position, I need to recognize, as you should as well, that we have been and continue to be key participants in a process of reproduction that upholds white supremacy and whiteness. So we don't do this knowingly. We think that we're doing really good research by following checklists and protocols and building on theories that have been vetted within our field. But in doing that work, we're actually reproducing a system that's harmful for those that are marginalized or minoritized in society. So even though we think that research is a neutral act, it's actually embedded with particular perspectives, framings, ideologies, paradigms that have served the dominant group. And this is because throughout history, early social scientists um, collected data mostly on white Euro-Americans and then formalized their experiences into concepts and theories. And these concepts and theories have become normative and the basis for comparison to all others. So as a result of using the theories that have been passed down through our programs where we learn to do research, we are in fact perpetuating the culture or imprint of whiteness, even though we think we're being neutral. And we know that when whiteness becomes normative, so the normal way to think about things, it works like God in mysterious ways. And it shows up um, whether we see it and acknowledge it or not. So I'm going to give you a couple of examples of what this looks like to make it very practical. Have you ever wondered why we're expected to report participants' responses by racial groups when we do quantitative research? Why do we have one category to use for white participants, but multiple categories to include other participants? 
So this is a really common practice in social science research. I'm sure you might do it yourself. It was designed to assess, this idea of comparison was designed to assess deviance from the white group's experience and the white norm, which, which privileges this position that this is the center and that anything that is not falling in line with the way white participants are experiencing something, then that is deviant from what is normal. So engaging in this common practice is obviously problematic, although we're expected to do it to get our papers published. Um, it also reinforces this idea that race is a biological construct and not a social construct, which if you're involved in um, like undergraduate medical education, we're moving away from race as biological to race as social. Um, and, and this kind of a practice in our research just reinforces this harmful way of, of um, ascribing certain characteristics to various races. And then sometimes we deal with this in research by just collapsing all of these other groups um, under maybe the uh, category of minoritized or um, UIM or something like that. And then we compare it to the white group. But this is also problematic, right? Because when we do that, we're essentially erasing nuances between these different racial groups, the Latinx groups, Black and African-American groups, indigenous groups. And even within like, say one of those categories, uh, the Black African-American group, you have Black individuals that have been born and raised in this country who have ancestors who were enslaved. You have uh, folks that are coming from the Caribbean and folks that are coming from Africa and their experiences are different, even though we as researchers label them as black. So this is one, one illustration of how our research practices are problematic, but yet it's just ingrained into what we do and what's expected of us by publications and um, dissemination of our work. I'm going to give you another example. So have you ever wondered where the various theories, concepts, and constructs that we use in our research come from? Who were these theories normed around? And how would they be different if more minoritized individuals were included in those original studies? So what we often forget to think about is that much of our understanding of how people think and behave comes from psychology and education, which reflect a specific set of experiences and perspectives that were developed in um, research around middle-class white individuals, particularly those who went to college. So when we take these constructs that were developed in this population and then use them in our own research, when we have minoritized groups, we are perpetuating the underlying assumption, assumptions that were developed in white society. And we're saying that this is what's normal, this is what's expected, and then superimposing them on communities that have very different social experiences than the group that these ideas were normed around. So this is all to say that when we take the research practices that we've been given, right, that we've learned in our programs, our fellowships, our residencies, for those of you that have PhDs, we are using constructs that unknowingly perpetuate a legacy of harm, and it has real consequences for others. So as educational researchers, we need to understand that there is no point at which we do our work in a way that's neutral. Rather, the work that we do is deeply embedded in a system that has been built to serve 
those who have historically been in positions of power to create knowledge, knowledge producers. And as such, what we study, how we study it, ultimately shapes the reality of others and how they're seen by society. So as an educational researcher, you have inherited a system that you did not design, nor did you create it, yet you're still responsible for it, right? And this is, this is pretty heavy if you take what I'm saying to heart, because I can imagine as you've gone through clinical training, that was challenging, right? It was a lot of sort of survival and coping techniques that you've had to learn. And then in the process, you had to learn how to be a a researcher and an educator along the way. And now I'm sure what you're hearing me say, because I am saying it as a researcher, the tools that you've been given, that you've been taught, can create harm to the communities that you're trying to help by conducting research. So I I can imagine that you might be experiencing some tension if if you're really getting what I'm saying um, in this presentation. So all hope is not lost. (laughs) There is a whole area of research called critical research that I would encourage you to look into. And what critical research does is questions all the assumptions around the research process and gives pause to it and asks deeper questions around such things as, Why are we doing this research? Who are we doing it for? Who does it serve? And how can we do it in a way that liberates everybody in this process? So today I'm not going to talk about critical research. If if I'm invited back some other time, I'm happy to talk about critical research. What I'm going to talk about is um, a study that I did to show you um, just This is an example that illustrates how research can be divisive, how it can seep in when you just take a theory and begin to build on it. So let me take you back to 2014 when I first came to the continental United States. So I was uh, raised in Hawaii on an outer island um, out in the middle of the Pacific. And we moved to Georgia. This was the very first time that I'd ever been to the South. Um, I wasn't quite sure where Georgia was. I had it kind of confused with Louisiana because they're kind of shaped the same. So it was uh, quite a shock when I showed up because I wasn't prepared. Um, What I immediately experienced as I was trying to settle into the community is that the white folks were very polite, but not welcoming. I did not experience that Southern hospitality that I'd seen on movies. Um, And I found that really sort of puzzling. And then there was also a large population, um, a Black population, African-American population that, that actually was very welcoming. But I could feel emotionally that as a white woman, I was kept at a distance. And I could not reconcile this. I did not have sort of the shared history that many people in the United States have about this black-white tension with issues of segregation and discrimination and racism. The kind of racism and discrimination I experienced growing up was against white people. So I'm very familiar with that. But this was a different nuance of this idea of racism and um, discrimination. So this was what was going on in my personal life. And then at that time, I was hired by the Medical College of Georgia, and um, I started to do medical education research, which was 
also disorienting because I don't come from a medical background. Um, so this is what was going on in 2014 and 2015, which is the backdrop for this study. So to get oriented to MedEd in those early days at MCG, I read widely in the areas of admissions, assessment, curriculum design, clinical reasoning, and in trying to understand uh, what medical education cared about and what it was trying to achieve. I came across this topic of professional identity formation at the time, which was a hot topic. And as you may know, uh, PIF, as it's known, is a process of transforming a, an individual from a layperson into a physician and all the processes that go along with it. However, in doing reading on this topic, I realized that the foundational literature on PIF assumed medical students were white. There was just a basic assumption there. And that race and ethnicity was completely overlooked, silenced or erased from the conversation. And I thought, huh, what are the implications of this assumption? This is so strange because I thought about this in the context of all the medical students at MCG, and we had a fairly large black population. And I thought that what I was learning as I taught PBL is that their experiences were quite different than what I was reading about. Um, and so I thought this was kind of an interesting situation. So just to make sure, just in case you've never run across this construct of professional identity formation, this is an adaptive developmental process and medical education is concerned about uh, what influences and what shapes trainees as they become physicians. Um, because it's this process of internalization of values and beliefs and practices um, that you learn as you go through your training. So the research says that it happens at an individual level. So this is the psychological development of a person, but also at the collective level. So this is the socialization of an individual into the medical community. And as they become uh, socialized, they have greater and greater access to sort of the, the ways uh, physicians think, act, and feel. So most of the research in this area has been fairly granular pretty much focused on sort of number one, the individual level, um, looking at cognitive processes. And it, at that time, it was only, you know, just starting to burgeon into this area of research where um, researchers were looking at the collective level. So that socialization process and including things like culture and context. Um, however, what had not until this point been considered in the PIF literature is the the Flexner Report, right? And this is that for nearly a century, Black and African Americans were excluded from medical education as a result of this report. And if you're not familiar with it, it's a document that's often heralded as an important inflection point in U.S. medical education, but also responsible for closing about 75% of U.S. medical schools for being inadequately staffed and supplied. Um, the Flexner Report was instrumental in standardizing medical education, so the standardization process that we have now um, in place within our profession, you can owe it to Flexner's report, um, but it was devastating for the training of Black and African American physicians because when these schools closed, white medical students could just go to another school and finish up their training. However, Black and African American physicians were not accepted in these white medical schools and were left with very few options for pursuing a career in medicine, which is part of the reason that we have so few 
physicians um, that are Black and African American in our profession now. And it was during this time, right, when most of our physicians were white, that research on professional identity formation um, began. And so this early research was conducted by white researchers studying white male physicians at a time when medical education in the U.S. was 97% white and 91% men. So as a result, race and ethnic data is typically omitted in PIF research. So can you kind of see where I'm going with this? So up until the point that I started to do this work, everybody had been building on these theories of PIF and what it is. But then in looking at the theory, there was this basic assumption that the students were white. And so all of the day, all of the research that came from PIF just made that assumption without ever questioning it. And when I started looking at these experiences uh, of these medical students and physicians, I saw that they, it just didn't fit. It wasn't what was in the dominant literature on this topic. Just what they were experiencing and telling me was not being recorded. So what I did is what's known as absence research. And absence research explicitly examines areas that are underdescribed, yet have potential to enhance the f- and develop the field. So absence research looks not only at what's there, right? So what's the, the literature on PIF, but also what is not there and should be. So what I did is I had to look around because I was new and I found um, two black African-American physicians at Emory University and a white physician at Medical College of Georgia. We teamed up and we conducted interviews with participants um, at both of our institutions. So 14 students, 10 residents and 14 attendings, all self-identified as black African-American. And we recruited them using our personal and professional networks um, because we wanted to make sure that these participants were connected to us in some way so that they would share their stories um, and feel comfortable um, telling us. Um, We used, um, and I don't want to go, unless I've really got some folks that want to nerd out with me, I'm not going to go too far in depth, but we used this framing of both and. Um, It's a conceptual framework that's developed out of Black feminist scholarship that recognizes the interlocking nature of oppression um, among minoritized groups and the need for research that really looks at these experiences. So we used it in the way um, that when these physicians were talking about being both black and a physician, so that's both. And then we also looked at the data for when they talked about being black physician and something else. So we were looking at this both and, I'm both black and a physician and something else. And this helped us understand how participants conceptualize themselves and their identities as Black physicians. And then we analyze their experiences within the culture of whiteness. So uh, if you're not familiar with this term, we have a paper under review. Hopefully it'll come out soon. This is, this is the idea that within society, there is a default standard and the background from which all communities are compared and made visible. So you might uh, be able to connect with this in thinking about um, issues of professionalism. If you've heard um, talk about this, that maybe our 
our competencies around professionalism are actually forwarding a white normative understanding of what it means to be a professional and not really considering what does it mean to be a professional in other ethnic, racial, and cultural groups. So whiteness functions at the level of social and societal structures, making it extremely challenging to see, but nevertheless insidious in organizing structures in society. Um, whiteness was allowed to proliferate because of the Flexner report, right? So when everybody in medical education is white, there's no other counter arguments or counter spaces or counter experiences to challenge and raise questions about the assumptions of um, what kinds of culture is being perpetuated in medicine. And then we used a metaphor of palimpsest. So I don't know if we have any history nerds in, in the, uh, maybe they're history buffs, <laughs> um, history buffs in the audience, but you will know this as an actual thing. A palimpsest is a document, usually a manuscript that is um, left behind um, as a new colonial government comes in and takes over a, a population. So as you can see in this picture, there's an inscription written beneath in blue ink, and then a red inscription being superimposed on the older um, one that's still visible underneath. So these are actual documents, they exist. And we use this as a metaphor because what we were seeing in our study is that the dominant literature around PIF is the red writing. This is what medical education wants us to see about what it means to create a professional identity. But black and African-American physicians were telling a different story, which was underneath this. And that if you were looking at that, that sort of depth, you would be able to see it. So here's what we found. So our participants perceived medicine to be precarious for black professionals. And they focused on challenging the larger historical, social and cultural mistreatment of black Americans within and outside of medicine. So while the dominant PIF literature is concerned with how trainees are socialized into the profession, how they internalize the values, the beliefs, the practices, this, is, this was not what we were hearing in the stories from our participants. They describe um, an awareness of medical education's history of exclusion that's not captured in the dominant PIF literature, which has made Black physicians alert and watchful as they're socialized into being members of the medical community. So what we found is that PEIF literature assumes that by virtue of choosing the profession and entering medical school, in time, trainees will be socialized into and become full members of the medical community. However, this assumption rests on the idea that the culture of medicine is one that is welcoming to ethnically and racially diverse physicians. And if you are one or you have friends that, that identify as such, this is not true. Given that the Flexner Report excluded Black physicians from training for nearly 100 years, the culture, the orientations, the framings of being Black are not included in the profession. In fact, multiple participants indicated that they needed to be careful and protective of themselves and other Black individuals, and even attendings didn't feel like full members within the medical community, even at that point in their career. In examining the PIF experiences of Black physicians, we found that they were on alert 
and joining the community. So here's an example um, from resident. Most of the ancillary staff around me are black. They always come up to me and they're so happy to see me, but they always give me a little side comment, like always keep your eyes open, always watch your back. It's not what it seems. Others tell me never get comfortable. Just know what the situation is. The second assumption, the PIF literature assumes that what influences a professional identity is found within the context of the training system. Therefore, PIF research only studies those influences within the training environment. However, in this study, Black physicians described using their professional influences physicians to engage in racial uplift, the idea that African Americans reach back into their community and bring others out of oppression. This interest in engaging in racial uplift increasingly became more important and visible towards the latter part of participants' career and was expressed frequently as a feeling of responsibility to other Black and African Americans, both in and out of the profession. So from one student, they said, I had to think of a way I could give back to my community through this field. I thought about the patients that I would be responsible for and how I could have a connection beyond just being their doctor. The third assumption, the PIF literature underscores the importance of having access to good mentorship in developing a professional identity. However, Black physicians are concerned with being a good mentor, meaning that the literature is not considered how being Black in a primarily white profession influences the professional identity of these physicians and the importance of physicians to mentor the younger generations. So from this student, um, there's a quote, being a leader is another part of my professional identity that's been developed through medical school. No matter what I end up doing, I will very likely find myself in some position of leadership. Oh, sorry, so being both Black and a physician and a leader in the community were integral to their professional identity formation. And just to reinforce the importance of leadership in these um, physicians' professional identity, just here's another quote, as I moved into leadership, being a Black woman, I had authority to change the narrative. This is when leadership became a part of my professional identity. I leveraged my street cred, if you will, to publish and speak as an authoritative voice as a Black person in medicine. So what we found is that Black and African-American physicians are eager to join the medical community, but are watchful and on alert as they do so. They suspect the training environment may not be safe, which is reinforced through interactions and reminding them of their outsider status. So microaggressions, as you uh, will recall. As they navigate medical education, they remain tightly connected to their ethnic and racial community and engage in various forms of racial uplift, both within and outside of medicine. All of these findings fall outside the dominant PIF literature, thus requiring a change in the narrative on PIF for Black and African-American physicians. For those of you that are empowered to make changes, there are lots of implications that came from this study. So one, being both a mentor and a mentee are important influences on their experiences of professional identity. Medical education must recognize that mentoring is part of their identity and integral to the success of underrepresented in medicine trainees, careers in medicine. So therefore, physicians that are minoritized um, need allyship from those who are non-minoritized and they need to play a greater role in helping to alleviate the burden that rests primarily on this group to shepherd new minoritized physicians and trainees into medical education. So one suggestion that we have is that medical education begin to reduce this burden, this burden placed on them and harness the potential 
of white physicians to assist in this effort in what might be known as the majority tax. So I'm sure you've heard of the minority tax over the last two years, which is the burden that's placed on minoritized physicians to care for um, those in their racial ethnic group. And we're saying pay attention to the majority tax. So because the Flexner report excluded this group, now that they're in our community, we need to do better to shepherd and protect and support this group in their training and careers. Black faculty endorse higher aspirations for leadership positions in academic medicine compared to their peers, yet many have a lower sense of inclusion, trust, and relationships compared to their white peers. So to address their desire for leadership positions, greater consideration must be given to their leadership aspirations. Um, these positions should not be limited to just DEI offices um, where their responsibility is primarily to address issues targeting the needs and support of minoritized trainees. Rather, these positions should include those at the level of the institution where decisions about the education and training are made to really make systemic and structural changes to the way that we train physicians. And medical education must pay greater attention to the overall culture of whiteness embedded in medicine's values, beliefs, and practices, and how this culture affects those groups who are new to the community. So if medical education is going to be inclusive of these other racial groups, other than white, this is what we need to do. So to return back to the idea that research can be uh, divisive and that we need to be careful with what tools we're using, what theories we're building on, and what responsibilities we have as researchers in the system as we try to improve it, I want to leave you with this idea that we need to rethink everything that we thought we knew about the development of professional identities when studying minoritized physicians, and we need to start from their experiences to guide this work. I would even so go so far as to say any time that we're dealing with, with experiences, personal experiences of our participants, we need to critically examine and question the tools, the framings, the theories that we're building on, and to make sure that they're appropriate um, for what we're studying in the groups we are studying. So this is our team. Um, here's my email address. And at this point, I'll take any questions that you might have.